Now, welcome to this celebration of Jesus' resurrection. This just outpouring of what he's done in our lives. This is why we're here this morning. This is why we're gathered. Some of you may not know that. We are so glad that you're here with us. Maybe you're here, frankly, under a little duress. We're like, okay, I'll come. Or there's some good eats afterwards. It's all right. I'll, I'll join you. But we are so glad that you're with us because of what God is doing. This is just a, a foretaste of what it will be like when we are with him in heaven for eternity. We're privileged to praise him. We give all thanks to him. And the only reason we're here is because of his resurrection, because of his death and his resur resur resurrection, which says it is true. He is alive. I had a marvelous evening last night. Vicki and I went to the bridge, which is a community of people that are part of the recovery world. They're looking for encouragement. They're looking for fellowship. They're looking for a word. And boy, was it brought yesterday. It was brought by a man named Sean Gordon. I met him about six months ago. Pastor Eric and I went on a ministry visitation. Sean was part of that team. We got to know his story a little bit. Sean was a guy who was raised in San Francisco, as he says, in the hood. That was pretty far from my own experience, but I'm listening to him with rapt attention about what his life was like and how it was marked by violence and abuse and the tragic and early death of his dad. And just a few years later, while he was a, still a teenager, he lost his mom. And so what did he know out of that environment? All he knew was violence, and so he just did what he saw other people doing. Joined a gang, took drugs, sold drugs, made that part of his life, made sure he was outdoing the other gang members and what gang members are doing. He didn't care. He knew life was going to be short. He knew it was already hard. He was so convinced that his life was brief that at 21, he took cash that he'd made from his drug sales and took a bunch of it down to a local mortuary and bought himself a funeral package, put the inscription on it, purchased the casket, knew that his time was limited. That was what life was like for Sean. But God had other plans for him. God rescued him by taking him to prison. He didn't get done on the streets, but he was put in jail. And he said, in jail, I wasn't changed. He actually did two stretches. The first one, all he did was plot uh, how he would get back and pay back people for what they'd done to him. And he was so angry, so mad at just life that he took on the correctional guards. That's bad. It's a year and a half in solitary, just dealing with that. And so when he gets out, he's ready to do his thing. But God had other plans. God had a resurrected life for him. He met a woman and fell in love, and they got married, and he had a child. But did that change him? Was that life circumstance going to change Sean? No, he said it did not. And so pretty soon he was back in jail, back in prison. And it was there he met a fellow inmate who just always had a smile on his face. To hear Sean tell it, it was an annoying smile on his face. It's like, wow, when is this guy going to stop smiling? But then the guy wanted to talk to him on a regular basis, would come into his cell and say, hey, can I share with you what has changed my life? Who has changed my life? And Sean would say, in no uncertain terms, as only prisoners can say, no, I am not interested. But it didn't stop this friend, 
Sean's friend, from relentlessly pursuing him with the gospel. And then he gave him a Bible. Sean started to change. Started to see his heart melt by the, by the gift of life that he'd given him, privileged him to be a dad, by giving him the word of God that showed him that he belonged to the Lord. And that was how Sean began to change. He's giving that testimony last night, blessing us. And I'm thinking, this is what the resurrected life looks like in action. Now, we're going to turn to our text in just a minute, but this is what resurrection looks like. To take somebody who was on a short, fast trip to death, already planned his funeral, and turns him around and raises him up, gives him a ministry, gives him a family. Sean got out later on, and he did not go back. By his own testimony, it wasn't easy. And if you get a chance, and if he comes back and visits the bridge at some point, I mean, that's worth hearing. I know Pastor Toby will, will promote that. But it was just this marvelous testimony of what God can do, what God is up to in each person's life, if we would just hear him and let him do that in our lives. Let's turn to our text. You heard um, one of the passages that was read was Matthew 28, and it's beginning in verse 1. It's really that first Easter morning, if you will. It's that time where we're celebrating Easter, what took place almost 2,000 years ago. We're here with joy. We're here with wonder. We're here with gladness. We're here with thanksgiving. But almost 2,000 years ago, we find this text opening up with the story of two women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, and they're on their way to the tomb because Jesus has just been crucified two days earlier. And they're on the tomb to anoint his body. And Mark adds the detail that they're, as they're on their way, they're talking about who's going to move that big stone away that's covering the tomb. And then Matthew says as they get there, there's an earthquake, a violent earthquake that so shakes everything, it removes the stone and makes the Roman soldiers that were guarding the tomb fall down like dead men. And the women see that the tomb is empty, is open. And at least that's one problem solved. They know who moved the stone. And an angel's sitting on the stone and he says, I know, don't be afraid. I know who you seek, Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. And then he gives them instructions to go and tell the disciples that Jesus is going to meet them in Galilee. And as they're going along, who do they meet? They meet Jesus himself. And Jesus says to them, Hi. Literally, that's the translation of the Greek. Hi. Greetings. Like, no big deal. Can you imagine if you ran into a resurrected Jesus, your Lord, who you'd called Lord, who you'd call Rabbi, and you see him, and you, you thought he was dead, you, as, as much as you know, you knew that he had died, and then he just comes and he says, Hi. It's like, what is that? At least, like, you know, just like, what happened? Jesus, get, get a little more excited. And they grasp, they're excited, they grasp his feet. They hang on to him and they, and they start to worship him. And this passage tells us two things that are really vital. First, it tells us that Jesus' resurrection is real. He was bodily, physically raised from the dead. He was not a ghost. This wasn't an apparition. This wasn't just some kind of collective psychological phenomenon. It wasn't a feeling. It wasn't a presence. They are looking at Jesus, they are hearing Jesus talk to them, and they are grasping his feet bodily and physically. It is so important that we know that for a fact. And this is what the Word of God tells us. The second thing that we see 
is that I think one of the reasons Jesus is just kind of chill about it is that, as the angel says, he is risen just as he said. Just as he said. Jesus knew that he would be raised from the dead because he had every confidence in God, his heavenly Father. The Lord had said, had already shown Jesus during his earthly ministry that he would have to suffer and die. And what? And on the third day, be raised to life. So Jesus is like, hi, because he already knows what God has promised. And God was faithful to him. And what happened? We we don't want to miss verse 6. Because when it says that he was risen, just as he said, it validates everything that Jesus said. When Jesus says to his disciples, I have to go up to Jerusalem and be handed over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law and and be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And then in fact that happened. That's what they see. They see the risen Lord in front of them. It validates everything that he said. You know, there are plenty of false prophets and false messiahs in Jesus' day. People that claim to be somebody, and they said, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm the messiah. I'm going to take it to the Romans. These guys are going down. Follow me. And eventually the Romans would catch up with that guy. That guy would be killed. And what would happen to the group? Scattered. Why? False prophet. What he said didn't come to pass. And if Jesus had just stayed in that grave, everything that he said, we wouldn't have to believe because it wouldn't be true. But the fact that he was raised out of the grave, raised by God the Father, that changes everything. If you're looking for kind of a shorthand version of what we're talking about today, it's that the resurrection changes everything. It changes what we know about God. How do you know who God is? You guys have colleagues at work, you have people in your family, you have neighbors. If you ask them who is God, they'd say, I don't know. I'm not even sure there is a God. And they might ask you, who is God? And you would say, let me show you who God is. If you've seen Jesus, then you've seen God. You know, remember that time where Jesus is with his disciples and Philip asks them later on in their ministry, this is about into year three of their three-year ministry together, is like, Lord, show us the Father, and it'll be enough for us. See, Philip sounds really pious, and it'll be enough for us. And then Jesus says, have you been with me so long that you haven't seen? Have you been with me so long? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And we can take those words to the bank. If we've seen Jesus, then we know God. What do we know about God? If you look at Jesus' ministry, you see how he starts by healing people, how he heals the sick, how he heals those that are demon-possessed. He has care, compassion for those. He wants to restore people to the way God originally intended them to live and to be. And that's what his healing ministry says. It also speaks to his power over anything that's been created. Jesus, part of the Godhead, is the creator. Anything else that is in this world is part of the creation. He has authority over that. So he's healing us. He's restoring us. He's coming against all the idols of his day, which, by the way, remain the idols of our day. He speaks against wealth, where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. Don't get bogged down in the pursuit of riches. Don't be so busy making a life, making a living that you forget to live. He comes against wealth. He comes against power. Some of us think, if I just have enough responsibility, if I just have enough power, if I just have enough position in my company, then I'll be satisfied. He comes against that. He comes against spiritual malpractice. If you read the Gospels over and over again, he is 
pounding on the Pharisees, the people that were making man-made rules, disguising the things that God has said, and all they were doing is wearing people down and putting guilt on them. And he comes against that. And he says, I will give you what true spirituality is. True spirituality is God the Father has forgiven you for everything that you have done, past, present, and future. If you would just receive that gift, now later on we'll talk about what he did to make that actual, actually come about, but he is preaching forgiveness. He is showing that God loves us. He's showing basically at its heart that God wants to restore the relationship that he once had with humankind through the work of his son. Adam and Eve in the garden, in the Lord's presence, with the Lord's provision, with the Lord's power, they leave it all. They decide that they know better than God. And God said, I can't have that impurity with my purity. I can't have that lack of love connected with me who is pure love and pure beauty. And so even though you can't be with me, I will rescue you over time. And I will rescue you through what my son Jesus did to make atonement. See, when God rescues us, he does in a way that is keeping with his justice and with his fairness. He is holy. He is pure. So on the one hand, he says, you can't be with me until you're rescued. But on the other hand, I will rescue you. So if we want to know the true God, we look no farther than Jesus. If we want to know the true God, his resurrection validates everything that Scripture tells us about who God is. And then the resurrection validates everything about what our biggest problem is. What's the biggest problem that you face? What's the biggest problem that is out there? What was the biggest problem in Jesus' day? If you ask the average Israelite on the street, you do an Israelite on the street interview, and you say, what's your biggest problem? And say, it's these Romans. These guys are awful. They are occupying our land. They are taking over you know, a lot of our economy. We're way overtaxed. They got this sort of half-Jewish, half-not guy on the throne. They are working us hard. They are working our nerves. The Romans, if we could just get rid of those guys and be restored to that independent nation that we once were, it would be okay. And then don't get me started about what's going on in my own personal life. I got this little guy, Zacchaeus, who's always dogging me for more money. He's always asking for more taxes. I got my mother-in-law just moved in with me. This is driving me crazy. Externalities. If you ask people now, what, what's our biggest issue? What would they say? They'd say, well, we got economic issues. We've got global issues. We've got environmental issues. We have social issues. I got stuff going on in my own family. I've got a mother-in-law. I've got this. I've got that. My favorite sports team made the world's worst draft picks last year. What are we going to do with that? We have all manner of issues that are where? Out there. And those are important, but those aren't our biggest problems. Our biggest issues aren't what's out there. It's what's in here. It's what's in our heart. It's the kind of things that, that keep us separated from God. Our biggest issue is, a, is that we want to live life the way we want to live it. We want to live it for our glory, our goals, our whatever we think is good. And we actually think we're better than others because we see them living more raggedy than we are. I'm like, okay, you know, maybe God grades on the curve, in which case I'm all right. But he doesn't. He looks at our heart. He sees if we are separated from him, and he knows that we are. He knows that we are deceived 
by what the Bible calls sin. Sin is a word that is a shorthand for everything that is counter to who God is or what he wants for us or the good life that he has always planned for us. Not just a life in this world, but a life eternal. That's what sin, sin drives us away. We may think we can control it, but we can't. You know, things might start as a so-called innocent flirtation, but then it goes to an emotional connection, and then it goes to a physical affair. And then it goes to the destruction of a marriage. Sin takes you farther than you want to go, causes you to stay longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you want to pay. You might be disgruntled at work, thinking you are undervalued and underpaid. So they're not going to miss this. Yeah, I could take that. Or, you know, what's another sick day? And they owe me more sick days anyway. And pretty soon the performance report shows